0: Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week on the nonprofit news feed brought to you by Whole Whale. Well, we are talking about 60 years after the iconic I Have a Dream speech and some sad news that also followed in that same weekend. We're covering some information about a nonprofit healthcare system, as well as an interesting report about the nonprofit that didn't exist. How's it going, Nick?
1: It's going great, George. So, as you alluded to, the first story we want to talk about is that it has been 60 years since. MLK Jr., Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, which occurred in Washington on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963. And to commemorate, then tens of thousands gathered again in front of the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on Saturday to declare that King's dream of racial equality was still unfulfilled. There is still more work to do. So speakers like Reverend Al Sharpton called for an end to systemic racism, hate crimes, police brutality gun violence, voter suppression, of, and other civil rights abuses that they say have persisted or even worsened in most recent years. So although the crowd was smaller than the original 250,000, I'm sure we all remember those those photos of the the endless people that were there, visitors this weekend carried signs that said Black Lives Matter and wore I Have a Dream shirts to continue to push for the social justice that King fought for decades ago. Many voiced disappointment in how much work remains to be fully achieved. And in some ways that was dramatically highlighted by the sad news out of Jacksonville, Florida, in which a attacker gunned down three people. A manifesto left by the attacker indicated that it was essentially a hate. It was racially motivated. The Florida governor has pledged a million dollars to increase security, HBCUs. But this moves the U.S. past the 470th mass shooting attack this year. We're now at 470 plus mass shooting events. So, George, we have this commemoration of a really, really important moment in history for civil rights, for the rights of Black African Americans. But it also comes as America as a country has had in some ways, a forced reckoning as we talk about the death of individuals like George Floyd just a couple of years ago and are continually reminded of kind of the deep racial resentment held by some in this country, even still. What, what are your takeaways from these stories? How, how have you been thinking about these events?
0: I think it's difficult to see these things in juxtaposition in just one one weekend, and it's hard to deny the comments made by speakers like Reverend Al Sharpton saying, like, we have not made the progress maybe that we had hoped for. I I do think some progress has been made, but, you know, it, it feels that you have affirmative action getting stepped back, walked back on terms of the social inequalities that exist and... Yeah. I mean, that's the statement. More work, the more work of nonprofits serving this sector with regard to social justice needs to be done. I think also at a at a high level, I mean, it's been something that we've been watching where I, I wonder how much in terms of the corporate social responsibility, but also extensions to DEI work at a corporate level where there's a lot of cutbacks and a lot of this investment that was like, a we're going to for a period of time, you know, double down on our DEI investments at a, at a corporate level or our initiatives and frankly when economic times begin to pull back, so too did a lot of those initiatives that internally may have not been correlated to their bottom line revenue types of work. So it is something that I think is amazing. Like 60 years since that it is both a long time and not a long time. And I can, I can view it through two different lenses and it takes many years, many decades, even centuries to to undo that amount of inequality sewn into the fabric of an organization like the United States. It just does, but it's sad to see it in in that weekend. And, you know, actually incredibly grateful to the the heroes over at that one HBCU, that, that block college, the campus security literally just scared the guy away. And so a lot of times there's, oh, what can be done? I was like, actually, the security really stepped up in that case. I saw a gentleman putting on tactical gear in the parking lot and chased him away. So I do think it's good that that increased investment, I don't know how much or how far a million goes, but is being spent because HBCUs are certainly a target as presented by facts of the last weekend.
1: Yeah, George, I think that that was a really good way of of handling the, the, the relation between these two stories. And I, I was thinking to myself that this is not, so, you know, this is not self-aggrandizing, but I have family members who both historically went to the March in DC and actually took some of those bus trips down to the South for, to help with, with integration efforts of, of the, the, the interstate bus system, right? And I also have family members who right now currently work in DEI settings, are DEI consultants and help and help these businesses. And I think the two are not interconnected. And I think it's very easy in our discourse to try to separate the past and the present. And you see that where Dr. Martin Luther King gets almost universal reverence in American political life, but DEI practitioners are seen as evil by half of the voting population in America, right? But I think in some ways, those legacies are not, th- that is the work continued in some ways. It's evolved, it's shifted, right? The institutional racism becomes more subtle. It's, it's less overt now, but that doesn't mean it's less baked into the system and how corporations, you know, <laughs> govern daily life. but like I live in Manhattan, I'm surrounded by corporations. And something I'm very aware of is even a place as progressive as New York City wants to be is deeply still segregated. Why is that, right? Like the history is the present. And I think some ways that we talk about, I think Martin Luther King Jr. gets sanitized a lot as if back in his time, he was seen as this universal figure who everybody loved. And that's not true. MLK was incredibly divisive to Americans at the time, right? He was a controversial figure. Um, The civil rights movement won out, right? But he caused tons of controversy. He was not universally loved. And I think it's important for me, something I try to do is let those histories not slip into like sanitized historical past little vignettes. But I try to think about them as the present day is inextricably linked with those histories, and that the work continues. So that is sort of something for me that I, I think about uh, when I reflect on Maltese legacy. Yeah,
0: and I, I think it's it's nice to also remember milestones like those at, at points that are not just on the, the single day or Black History Month, but along along the course of the year, because that's how the events and unfolded in our history.
1: Absolutely. All right, George, I'll take us into our next story. This one comes from the New York Times. And the title is a nonprofit healthcare system says it's ending a policy that denied care to indebted patients, which then begs the question, was a nonprofit healthcare system denying care to indebted patients? The answer is yes. So Alina Health is a large Western system of hospitals and clinics that it has decided to stop cutting off medical care to patients, unpaid medical bills, $4,500 or more. It seems that people with medical bills were kind of blacklisted from the hospital system. So the hospitals treated anyone in emergency room for all other services were cut off for indebted patients, including children and those with chronic illnesses like diabetes and depression. Patients weren't allowed back until they had paid off their debt entirely. George, I know that medical debt is an issue we talk a lot about on this show and we have a connection with some organizations that do great work in that space. What's your take on this article? It's
0: good to see the investigations continuing to come out. Scrutiny of hospitals that operate under that tax classification of 501c3 for the public good have the public mandate, the legal obligation to support people at the bottom end, at the unaffordable level of the the inco- income income. Levels to to provide services. Frankly, that's that's why you get the tax treatment, right? That's why our tax dollars go to underwriting your ability to operate. And so, when these are you know exposed, I think it's important to to tell that story, retell it, and then you know also celebrate organizations like RIP Medical Debt out there helping erase other medical debt. Look, it's the number one reason. It's the number one reason someone's going to slip into bankruptcy and go into a debt spiral. I can't get out of it. It is absolutely absurd. And literally at the forefront are policies and practices and organizations doing things like this to low-income Americans and creating these types of horrific decisions of, of debt versus health care. Keep, keep going. I, I salute the journalists doing this and the Minnesota Attorney General's office that focused in on Elena's billing and debt collection practices. Get them as well as the consulting agencies out there that are associated with helping these types of organizations do more clever debt collection. You know, I, I question your daily hours and your billables
1: when you're, when you're operating to hurt this country. Strong words, George. I agree with you. <laughs> hey, I mean, someone needs to speak truth to power, right? And it looks like that that happened in this case. I want to take us into our next story. This is a curious one. This one comes from Morning Report, the voice of San Diego. Um, The funny thing here is that a nonprofit that supposedly ran concession stands at Co Park, home of the San Diego Padres, apparently all concession stands are run by charities, actually. This particular nonprofit, Chula Vista Fast Pitch, doesn't have permits or websites, and in fact doesn't exist that they do not run concessions so there's there's like a there's like middlemen there's lots of there's layers of vendors on vendors but millions of dollars 3.7 million worth in net sales went to this nonprofit that ran concession stands that didn't exist George I personally don't run baseball stadium concessions but I'm sure for people in that very specific deals ought to be something of a wake-up call Pull the thread, right? If you're at
0: a game, if you're at a, a massive event, you can't assume the information given is, is accurate. And so at this case, again, head nod to the reporters here, you know, covered by also Voice of San Diego uh, in terms of general local reporting, like pull the thread. And it seems like time and again, we're talking about stories where at the undercurrent, there is an organization, a legitimate branded group that then sort of gets their messaging borrowed, if you will, by another organization that will sound legitimate-ish and then reap the rewards of a public giving program. And so what this means to me is continue to do your homework, even if you are not a national organization. At the local level, pay attention to where and how your brand shows up. What does that look like? Google search results, news alerts, things that are happening in social, any mentions of your name or things that are like your name, you should pay attention to follow the money and follow that attention because it is happening, it seems, at high and low levels. And this is just like an example of one of these like cash grabs because someone saw an opportunity to trick an organization at an event that sounds legitimate into getting
1: a crowd to donate money. Yeah, George, I think that that's exactly right. And Ron Weasley uh, was famously scared of following the spiders. Um, but nonprofits can't be afraid to follow the money um, and see you where they You had to up. tie it back to to Hogwarts, didn't you? We have to. We have to get a Harry Potter reference in there. Um, it, George, it's almost fall. And fall means um, that it's time for Halloween, which is in Wizards. I'm here for it because it's too darn humid in new york george i want to take us to a feel-good story and this one comes from news 5 cleveland uh wews um where it highlights the work of Brody hicks a sophomore at perry high school uh who quote is on a roll with the nonprofit. he created this summer called up cycle cycles uh you have a local kid here essentially upcycling uh Unused or discarded of bicycles, um, and giving them to people in need, particularly children. Um, so we take the bicycles uh, that were otherwise about to be scrapped at the Lake County Solid Waste Landfill, um, and then giving them to people who could use bicycles. And bicycles, I think, uh, are you know increasingly in American life uh, more than just fun. They're a form of transportation, um, and they can you know expand people's access to services and that kind of thing. So I think this is a really great story. Like such a good idea. Um, it almost begs the question, why haven't we been doing this before? Um, but uh, often see a local kid stepping up to fill a need.
0: Yeah, look, it takes work, right? Uh, it's a last mile problem. Like certainly you have bikes, they need repair and they need delivery. And that's why nonprofits exist. That's why that entity exists to serve the public benefit to improve inefficiencies and help local communities. The other nuance of the story that I really liked is the the he is also raising money for helmets to go with the bikes. So it's important to note that like, hey, um, here's a bike that goes 30 miles an hour um, without a helmet. You might be giving away a liability. It's like a really thoughtful approach to secondary effects because I could see the next chapter of this, unfortunately, going, you know, 150 bikes given out to, you know, kids in a community and head injuries go through the roof. What, what did you, what is the net, net of, of your work and I I like that um I like <laughs> like they thought of like hey, you know we're gonna need some helmets for this so hopefully somebody can sponsor them and they can get a a, a bulk discount on that um all I have a question for you Nick
1: why were the students at the scratch coding class cold why were the students at the scratch coding class cold? I don't know uh, they had too many windows open, Nick. Oh, oh. <laughs> strong, strong. In
0: case you're not familiar, Scratch is actually the world's largest coding community for children. It's uh, coding language. They have a simple visual interface, and they allow children to create digital stories and animations. And so the Scratch Foundation is doing incredible work, also happens to be a past former whale client. So uh, kudos to them. And hopefully they don't have too many windows open. All right, Nick, I'll see you out there. See you, George. This has been using the whole whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to whole university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to GregThomasMusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you.